Welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, Episode 10, Adapt or Die. Hello, and welcome to Episode 10, Adapt or Die. Welcome back. Today, we're going to look at the transition between the Latin and Hallstatt cultures and question how linked these were. Did Hallstatt simply adapt to become Latin, or did it die out and Latin was born from the ashes? So for starters, something dramatic happened between the year 500 and 450 BCE. The incidence and prevalence of the huge centralised trading centres and Hallstatt-style burials in the western Hallstatt zone almost vanished. Settlements like the Hörneberg, for example, experienced a catastrophic fire and was simply abandoned, most likely due to the absence of resources or, in fact, a desire to reoccupy. The question is why? Why did a project as grand and powerful as the Hörneberg not merit the resources to rebuild? Was it a question of cost-effectiveness, warfare, migration, or perhaps systems collapse, like we touched on the vast empires of the Near East? Well, in order to find out, we're going to tour some of the areas where Hallstatt culture remains, or in fact, rumps of their former glory. These focus down to three geographical groups which represent the new trend. The Marne-Moselle Valley, the Rhine Valley, and Bohemia. On the periphery of these new zones of influence, there are some holdouts of the old Hallstatt social structure and burials, such as the notable example of the hill fort at Hohenschberg. Hohenschberg is the fort which was most likely the home to the Hochdorf prince, as well as another two notable burials at Grafenbühl and Rommelkübel all around the end of the 6th century to the start of the 5th century. As I'm sure you recall from Hochdorf, at the time of this burial, Hallstatt culture would appear alive and well, as numerous links to the classical world can be seen through his grave, as well as stunningly crafted local goods. We also spoke at the time about the notable lack of goods associated with war. A four-wheeled wagon, a gilded dagger, and the vague impression of what might be a battle scene on his lounger were the only clues to to a lifestyle associated with warfare. And considering the prominence of the luxury goods from other countries, it was clear that this was certainly not the main points of pride for the Hallstatt princes. Archaeologists like the great Barry Cunliffe are also keen to point out that Etruscan finds, in fact, increase in the coming 5th century. However, geographically, their presence shifts north to the Marne and Moselle Valley, a point which we will return to later. In any case, the hill fort at the Hohenschberg, the site we believe these grand princes called their home and the seat of power, will continue to be occupied throughout this transitional period, presumably by the same people. And in fact, the same burial sites will be used later by Latin chieftains. This gives us a unique opportunity to do somewhat of a direct comparison between the princely graves of these merchant lords and the warrior chief that follows. Taking the nearby example of the Kleinesburgel 
a familiar barrow mound dated to the 5th century BCE. We unsurprisingly find a gold clasp drinking horn, Etruscan bronze vessels to hold the wine, and attic cups for drinking. We also find spears and swords. The early indicators that wealth was no longer the sole arbiter of status, but the occupant's status as a martial leader was at least of equal importance. We also see the more consistent use of constant, curved, almost vine-like patterns, which will come to represent Latin culture in our minds. If we travel 150 kilometres to the north of this area, we are between the Marne and Moselle river valleys. For those of you who are not sure where we're talking about, it's approximately area of the Western Front during the First World War. Uh, it's between the city of Reims and Metz. While not a major focus of ours during the Hallstatt episodes, this area did play host to some very prominent burials, though not with the density of other zones we have focused on. For example, the prominent Bell's burial, which is one of the most well-preserved and richest of the wagon burials, is in this area. However, during the 5th century BCE, something interesting happens. While other areas of Hallstatt power are receding, the number of graves with rich burial goods to the north dramatically increase. Some of these graves include such favourites as bronze vessels from Etruscan workshops at Volchi. In fact, there is an astonishing level of density of Etruscan goods in the Moselle Valley close to its confluence with the Rhine. These include characteristics bronze beaked flagons like the one recently featured on the Instagram, the Bas Utes flagon, that demonstrates the peak of the cultural confluence of the Celtic and Etruscan cultures. In fact, the archaeological evidence shows increased connections with the Etruscan city-states on the other side of the Alps, despite it being significantly more geographically removed from the northern Italian states. So what about those that lie in between this new early Latin zone and the Etruscan states? If you have a map in front of you, you will notice that those goods travel right through the heart of our Hallstatt chiefdoms. What of our old friends at the salt mines of Hallstatt and the grand fortress of the Hörneberg? Well, two key events concern the once great power of the 6th century. First, the great salt mines at Hallstatt, which fed the economy of the Hörneberg and its cousins, dry up. Now, if you cast your mind back to our tour of the Mediterranean, you will recall that one of the primary causes of the Bronze Age collapse was something known as systems collapse. Often, the more complex a system comes, the less resilient it becomes. This vital link in the chain being broken, no doubt, had an impact, because the Hörneberg itself burns to the ground around the same time, as we previously mentioned. Now, before we start jumping the gun, we need to unpack this a little bit by addressing some assumptions we've just implicitly made. First, the salt place itself, how much did that impact the power of the cultural system we've been talking about? I.e., is this related to the somewhat dramatic downfall of our great white fortress on the hill? Secondly, was there a relationship between the fall of Hörneberg and the rise of the Marne, Moselle and Rhine regions? Well, we don't know that for certain, but let's try and use Occam's razor and take the most likely interpretation of the facts. 
The Hörnerberg itself is unique due to its sophisticated and strategic access to all the avenues of trade available, north of the Baltic, east down the Danube, west to its fellow Hallstatt chieftains, and south to the Po River Valley, or to put it in terms of the goods themselves, amber and furs from the north, horses from the east, salt and iron from themselves, wine and goods from the west via Vix, and south via the Po Valley. If you take away the salt, which all these societies deeply valued, then their only real bargaining chip is as middlemen, cultural and trade crossroads, which held relationships with all these people through their historic trade dependence. Now, if you're a chief in a less wealthy northern tribe, you're still having to deal with these middlemen who sit like plump superior peacocks upon thrones built on the wealth they are no longer creating. Sounds a little bit familiar. Not to mention the fact that your ability to assert control over your own people is dependent on your ability to provide those luxury goods. Now, you're left with two options. Simply decline the way that they did and give up power, or find new, more direct ways of maintaining overlordship. Perhaps they went back to the roots of their Urnfield ancestors and began to value the sword over the pen. Perhaps, indeed, this is where the chiefs of the North learned the lesson. They would famously teach Rome and throw their swords in the scale and cry, Hue victus! Woe to the conquered! After all, there was one commodity always valued in the brutal world of antiquity. Slaves. Slaves mainly captured in intertribal warfare small-scale raids which bring movable material wealth as well as battle captives cowed by a mighty warrior chief who may still boast of his cross-cultural trade connections and hold sophisticated symposia, but now owes that privilege to his prowess as a warrior, a war leader. Gone are the four-wheeled wagons of transport and trade replaced by speedy two-wheeled chariots from which chiefs and nobles use the strength of their arm to banish the enemies of the tribe with the strike of a javelin, the thrust of the spear, and the slash of his mighty sword. Around this time, the middle of the 5th century, something tragic happened at the Hrunneberg. The shining city on the hill is engulfed in a catastrophic fire. Imagine all those homes made mainly of timber, dry, flammable materials. Try to put yourself in the shoes of the poor family which are helplessly as the fire gets closer and closer. Soon, panic floods the streets, and with those trying to evacuate, people collapse and tumble over each other, losing their sense of direction from the thick black smoke and the chaos. First the old and infirm, then the children drop to the ground dead, dying from smoke inhalation, as their loved ones frantically scramble to find them. Sadly, the devastation wrought by this fire was never repaired. Either lacking the resources, skill, or desire to rebuild what their ancestors had created at the Hörneberg, it limps along until being abandoned forever. That city, that was even recognised as such by the snobs of ancient Greece as a great city on the Danube, will never see its like again. But we, dear listeners, will not forget The cause of this fire, as well as the reaction to it, has the potential to tell us much about the catalysts of the city's decline. There are two probable explanations, and I will take what I feel is the most plausible second. Number one, 
intentional. Number two, accidental. One of those power centers, the Hörneberg was the middleman for, a rival Hallstatt chieftain or foreign invader, perhaps Scythians from the east, attacked, captured, and sacked the city to remove the settlements as a, settlement as a rival, steal its movable wealth, or simply to harm the prestige of its rulers. Now, this is never out of the question in the violent and often turbulent world of ancient history, but while there is evidence of a fire, there is no further evidence to indicate military conflict that I'm aware of, and so that brings us to the second explanation. Any of you out there who, when listening to our episode on the Hörneberg, thought it was peculiar to have the biggest fire hazard in the city, metallurgy workshops and smiths, based in the innermost part of the settlement, alongside the elite and all the other industries the princes relied on to maintain their power, you might say that this is their chickens coming home to roost. Or perhaps pigeons for all you Olga the Great fans out there. Logically, when fire was even more dangerous and even harder to fight than it is now, with almost everything in their tightly packed city made of materials that might not look out of place in a tinderbox, you'd want your forge on the outside of the city where the fire has the least potential to cause damage catastrophic damage. The need to centralise the metal industries around the palace centre may have been the downfall of this most prominent of cities. Anachronistic analogies aside about the hubris, I think the accidental fire is highly plausible as an explanation, and if that was the case, then it would demonstrate that the princes no longer had the means to repair the damage. This would line up with the decline in the princely burials in the area, as well as the general decline in the large hill forts slash trading centres of the Hallstatt chiefdoms. Large hill forts, like the ones at the Hörneberg and Vix, will return, and some even to survive to the Roman era. The Romans were not ones to ignore the Celts' clear eye for location, and some of these cities, such as the Hohensberg, were occupied continuously up until today being an important site of history all the way up to the Napoleonic era. So what about the Eastern Hallstatt Zone? Honestly, this is the biggest failure of the podcast so far. I did an episode on the Central and Western Hallstatt Zone, and the Eastern Hallstatt Zone absolutely deserved its own episode. However, here is now the chance for the Celts of the Eastern Zone to show their importance. You'll notice, hopefully, that I said Celts, and... I feel I have a good reason for this. I try and use the term Celt sparingly when we're talking about Latin, and I've generally avoided it for Hallstatt. Being f- fair to Hallstatt, the term Celt comes from the Hallstatt era, not the Latin period, but the later classical sources see these as one and the same. Based on the evidence in the Central and Western Europe, it is still up for debate if the Latin tribes in Greater Gaul, and by extension the British and Iberian branches, are direct successors of Hallstatt or peripheral pioneers. The Eastern Hallstatt zone, however, does not move as far as the evidence indicates. These are the same people occupying the same location who culturally adapted, adjusted, and evolved with the changes. For In the most relevant example, do we perhaps see the most direct and deserving candidate to be named both Hallstatt, Latin, and therefore I feel can most safely be called Celts. There are a good number of Hallstatt C vehicle burials in this region, but during the Hallstatt D chiefdoms around 600 BCE, the site of Savist is founded, and with it, an explosion of Hallstatt D princely graves in the eastern zone. 
Zavist is actually located inside the modern city limits of Prague at the Vlatava River, which is a tributary of the Elbe. Another excellent strategic location, by the way. Following this river system north would take you into the Baltic Sea, where the precious amber can be found. And following these rivers south gives access to Austria and flows not too far away from the Danube, approximately west of Salzburg, right into the central Hallstatt zone. Alongside access to amber and furs, this area is also famously rich in gold, which I'm sure their fellow metal workers in the west were keen to get their hands on for their elaborate burial goods. Now, you all know enough about the importance of river and coastal access when it comes to ancient trade by now, and interestingly, this settlement was initially unfortified when founded in the 6th century BC, although it does sit on a natural acropolis. At the start of the 5th century BC, the occupants of Zabis adapted and began building an earthen rampart followed by a wooden palisade, and this eventually developed into what can safely be called an oppidum which was at least later occupied by the famous Boii, who of course give their name to the region, Bohemia. If they were indeed the occupants from 600 BCE, we perhaps have our first tribe named from the Hallstatt period, which is traceable all the way until the late Latin era. I don't want to say too much about the Boii, as the Boii, Parisi, Treverni and Sinons are going to get their own episode when we talk about the famous invasions of the classical world. But rest assured, we will come back to the Boii. But this area of Bohemia will host some of the densest concentrations of Latin cemeteries, as well as spectacular jewellery, weapons, and even stone carvings at, per, forgive my pronunciation, Metzek Zechovis in the late 2nd century. To conclude... Latin is very much on the rise. The tribes on the periphery of the Hallstatt North have become the trendsetters. But as we won't be diving into Latin proper until season two, so let's start summarizing the similarities and differences we have observed in this episode. As Hallstatt wanes and Latin waxes, despite trade no longer being the sole arbiter of prestige and power, we still have an elite which associates itself with Mediterranean luxury goods, particularly the Etruscans, and it still shows signs of imitation in symposia. Native metallurgy and crafts still hold a prominent place in society centralized around the elite, and this will continue to grow and become a key aspect of Latin material culture. However, the main difference is that burial goods increasingly focus on war chariots rather than the wagon and the incidence and prevalence of weapons of war rather than weapons of ceremony and hunting. We also can see that with a few exceptions that the large-scale trade forts of the Hallstatt period are being abandoned and no new hill forts of this scale are being newly constructed, although some are continuously occupied, as said. I may be wrong, but it seems to me that the political power and the elites are more dispersed rather than centralized under Hallstatt. And perhaps this was part of the reason Latin elites were more incentivized to move in the later migration period, leading to its eventual dominance over Europe, as they were not as dependent on these large political centers, and so the tribe was less geographically anchored. This will change in the late Latin period with the rise of the large oppidum, but perhaps this was why the need for a political aspect of Druidism developed. 
our classical sources clearly reference the geographical fluidity of these tribes and therefore a system of a-tribal fathers that could foster communication and relations throughout the Celtic world. Perhaps this became more necessary due to their fluidity and the lack of political centralization. While the similarities and the links to Hallstatt may be evident, Latin material culture demonstrates a shift in design, particularly in the early days by the curved rather than geometric designs and an abundance of animals as well as anthropomorphic imagery in almost everything they built, which suggests a shift in worldview, expression and emphasis, which will explode and spread with the migration period and leave an imprint on the imagination of the classical world who will go on to influence the culture of the majority of those listening to me today. This is where the image of the Celt in popular imagination was born, the love of natural beauty, art, music, stories, and of course, a good scrap. While we are discussing the early development of what would become the classical Celtic world in Europe, perhaps it behooves us to evaluate their worldview through the frame of their spiritual beliefs. Most Celtic gods are localized deities, which are often tied to a specific location, usually a natural landmark like a lake, a grove, river, or mountain. These gods were often the most significant to the local people. This is where some of the most stereotypical practices originate from, such as tossing weapons and armor into bogs and rivers, and thoughts such as moonlit cult meetings in sacred groves. There are some gods, however, who can be identified through the mutilation of Roman or later Christian sources, for example, Lu. There also is a reference to Totanes in many Gallic tribes, which translates roughly to the god of the tribe, which could be the same god worshipped across all tribes or one god per tribe, if you will. However, I personally think that many of these gods were pre-Celtic, and were either adopted by Celtic incomers or Celticized over time by the, by the cultural and political shift we've been talking about for many episodes now. There were, however, a couple of pan-Celtic gods, if you like, which are found all over the Celtic world from Italy to Ireland. Dr. Barry Cunliffe claims there are references to as many as 200 gods throughout various textual sources, and Caesar famously quotes the equivalent in the Roman pantheon for his Gallic commentaries. But it is believed that Caesar had a specific political purpose in drawing equivalents to demonstrate to the Roman population the Gauls were capable of Romanization and therefore worth conquering and turning into citizens. Gaul was the first non-Mediterranean province that the Romans had attempted to conquer and they had been otherized for so long as the Roman boogeyman that Caesar had to convince the Roman people that they were worth conquering and turned into Romans. Hence why he also uses direct comparisons between the Gallic and Roman political systems. We will cover the complexity of Greco-Gallic and Romano-Gallic relations when we reach this point in the narrative, but for the moment I am going to stay focused on 
the information that they give us, however biased it may be, on these pan-Celtic gods. There are three gods of particular note, uh, which I wish to cover, which have a particular brevity across the Celtic world. Though they vary in their aspect, prominence and importance from tribe to tribe, much like the Greek gods, we have Lu, Kernanos, and Epona. These three can be found from the early Latin period all the way to the medieval period, and I will take this point to issue a correction from my Hörneberg episode. I couldn't decide which of these two gods to depict on the Hörneberg's inner gate last time, and the descriptions of the gods got a bit mixed up in the two drafts that I had, resulting in my identifying Kernanos as a protector of the dead, which is in fact the aspect of Lu. Furthermore, I thought that I decided on Lu as the protector of the Hörneberg simply due to the fact that as a solar deity, he's more likely to have been worshipped during the Hallstatt period than Kernanos, who doesn't appear until the Migration period. Lu is highly prolific and resilient across the Celtic world, known by the Gaelic-Irish as a master of all crafts and skills, as we mentioned, and a god of the sky and the land, which we didn't. I like to think of Lu as the many-faced god, and to demonstrate why, here are just some of the aspects credited to him. Long-armed Lu the warrior, king of the gods, master of crafts, lord of the sky, giver of dreams, protector of the dead, the chief of prosperity, the giver of dreams, the protector of travellers, king of the Andals and the first men, mother of... Oh no, maybe not those last two. Lu is thought to be originally a solar deity, which harkens back to a time before subsistence farming was prominent and the primary calendars were solar. If we harken back to our episodes on Indo-European origins, you will recall that the central god in most Indo-European cultures is a sky god, often referred to as Deus Pacte. If you remember, later our bell beakers showed a great interest in solar imagery, especially depicting with precious metals as well as lunar images depicted by the Unities culture on, for example, the Nebra Sky Disc, something we'll bring up again next episode as we talk a bit about Ireland. Lu is thought to have started as such a deity and evolved into his various aspects depending on geographical and cultural contexts. Solar deities, like for example the Greek Helios, fade in importance when the society starts to rely on subsistence farming and the calendar moves from a solar or lunar one to more focused on planting, harvest, etc., as from the Hallstatt period onwards, the diet on the continent was mostly wheat, barley, beans and peas, which was supplemented by animal products, mainly from cattle, sheep and pigs. By the time of the Gallic War in the 1st century BCE, Caesar claims the following about Lu, who he refers to as Mercury, which is equivalent to the Greek Hermes. The most revered of which is Mercury, and the Gauls have many images of him. He is regarded to be the inventor of all arts and also presides over travel and commerce. 
In trying to compare Lou with Mercury, Caesar does in fact miss some of the essential aspects of Lou's worship, such as his association with the Harvest Festival of Lungasad, which is traditionally held on August the 1st. Lungasad, as I understand it, also focuses on Lou's banishment of evil creatures and is a bringer of light, which perhaps harkens back to his time as a solar deity. I plan to complete bonus episodes on the four main harvest festivals in the Celtic calendar, as there is much more to touch on here, especially since there are those who still celebrate these festivals in modern times. Another Roman writer, Lucan, refers to a god he associates with Lu to be Lu Esses and claims that sometimes human sacrifices were made in the form of the hanging to Lu. This may have something to do with his aspect as a herald of the underworld, but I'm seeing some superficial similarities with Woden or Odin in the Germanic tradition. Odin is also seen of the bringer of light and knowledge, but with heavy associations with sacrifice, death and rebirth as well as being king of all the gods. Perhaps they come from a similar Proto-Indipian progenitor god. Anyway, that's where we will leave Lu for now and move on to another prominent and enigmatic god, Kernanos. Kernanos, or the Horned One, first appears in 400 BCE in the Celtic-occupied settlement Val Camconica in northern Italy, but perhaps... His most famous depiction is on the Gundestrup cauldron from the 1st century BCE, which was found in modern-day Jutland. Here he is depicted, much like Priscus saw on the gate, cross-legged, horned, wielding a torque, and what appears to be a serpent. However, what I've left out is that Kernanos is often depicted with a large phallus to represent male virility. Kernanos is thought to be the masculine aspect of nature, though many modern pagans talk about him having female counterpart, and there is little ancient evidence to support this. He is often with animals, especially stags, and is associated heavily with the wild hunt forests and groves. He is often seen cross-legged, passive, and takes less of an interest in mortal affairs than Lou. Lu is very much a god of civilization, whereas my understanding is that Kernanos is very much a god of the wild in all its aspects, and he may be the source of the nature-loving native stereotype often seen in modern interpretations of Celtic popular media. Sadly, we know less about Kernanos than Lu, as due to his horned aspect and the nature of him as a fertility god, Later church scholars, on whom we rely for so much, identified him as a depiction of Satan, which has led to his eradication, demonization, misinterpretation by the church, and of course, those who rely on their writings. Karnanos was worshipped heavily on the British Isles, more so than on the continent, so we will return to him when we deal with the British and the Gales in later episodes. Well, I think that's about all we have time for today. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Next episode will either be on the Celtic languages or the soon-to-be Celts of the Atlantic fringe. However, in between this and the next episode, I'm hoping to have my interview with Dr. Gordon Noble published and uploaded. So I'm taking this opportunity to ask you to submit any listener questions that you have about the Picts in general or the Northern Picts project. 
once these three episodes are out, we're going to have an end of the series uh, Q&A. So if you could email your questions to CelticHistoryPodcast at gmail.com, that's CelticHistoryPodcast at gmail.com. If you've not already done so, I'd encourage you to find my Instagram at CelticHistoryPod. And for those of you, nearly 500 at this point, who are following me on Instagram, I'd ask you to also go over and like the Facebook page, which is linked to the Instagram. As hilariously, I have like 500 followers on my Instagram and only about three or something on the Facebook, which is pretty hilarious considering they're linked and post the same content most of the time. If you have the time, I would also ask you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, which is simply called The Celtic History Podcast, where I'm hoping to start uploading more regularly. I really encourage you to follow me in these places because they really do enhance the podcast and give a visual aspect to the whole thing. Also, demands on my time and production costs are increasing as I'm trying to improve the quality and regularity of the show. So I'd like to thank Rianne Kennedy and Gabrielle Thorpe, my current two patrons who are currently managing to pay for all the hosting fees. So thank you so much. This would not be possible without your support. Anyone who wants to join the clan, there is a link to my Patreon on my Instagram and my other social media, or simply search Celtic History Podcast at patreon.com. That's Celtic History Podcast at patreon.com. Thank you.